When Brzezieski was six, her mom pulled her from school for a special trip to the museum. It was meant to be a fun break from the trials and tribulations of first grade, but Brie had a hard time enjoying the day. No matter how much water she drank, she couldn't shake a seemingly unquenchable thirst. She spent most of the trip running back and forth to water fountains and the restroom. Many parents might have seen the situation as bizarre, but not alarming. Maybe the little girl was just a little dehydrated. But Bree's mom knew something was wrong. A type 1 diabetic, she recognized the symptoms all too well. When they arrived home, she told Bree to go upstairs and change into her pajamas. Like they were special, they were new, and my mom's like, why don't you go put those on? And then, this sounds awful, but my dad had to hold me down so my mom could test my blood sugar because I was so scared of the needle. Then we went to the hospital and my mom realized my blood sugar was in the 200s. It may sound counterintuitive, but Bree, a senior in UNT's Department of Psychology who will graduate this December, was lucky. According to the American Diabetes Association, 34.2 million adults, or about 10.5% of the population, have diabetes. Of those, nearly 1.6 million have type 1, a rarer form often referred to as juvenile diabetes or insulin-dependent diabetes, including about 187,000 children and adolescents. Between 2010 and 2016, the prevalence of diabetic ketoacidosis among patients at the time of their type 1 diagnosis increased from just over a third to more than 40%. Diabetic ketoacidosis, also known as DKA, is a serious condition that can lead to coma or even death when blood sugars, which in normal range run below 140, skyrocket. It occurs when cells can't access glucose due to a lack of insulin, leading the body to break down fat for energy, resulting in ketones. When ketones build up in the blood, they make it more acidic. It is an autoimmune disease. Um, It cannot be prevented. It cannot be, it's not due to lifestyle or anything like that. So it's basically when, when your body decides to stop making insulin, it stops making insulin. And so that leaves people with type 1 diabetes um, reliant upon injected insulin just to survive. And insulin is by no means a cure. This is Courtney Garvey. She's a public administration alum and community outreach manager for the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, who we'll hear from a little more later in the episode. And it's also important to know that, you know, while most diagnoses of type 1 diabetes are ages, I think 14 and under, type 1 diabetes can be diagnosed at any age. It's not a childhood disease like we previously thought, you know, many decades ago. Um, so it really can be diagnosed in teenagers, young adults, even those into their 40s, 50s, and 60s. But knowing these symptoms can be so helpful in in preventing it getting any further to that DKA level, which is what we don't want. Um, And I think we have to get the warning signs out there to save lives. The symptoms include thirst, frequent urination, tiredness, and blurred vision. And doctors are concerned that those indicators are frequently missed or mistaken for other illnesses by caregivers and healthcare providers. I can tell you that was certainly true in my case. Back in 1993, at age 11, I was diagnosed with type 1 following the onset of DKA. After passing out, I was rushed to the emergency room with a blood sugar of nearly 900. So it's important that more diagnosis stories are like Bree's, 
where the illness is caught early before symptoms are out of control. Her mother recognized the symptoms because she had been through it herself. But for those who aren't quite sure what to look for, it's key that the signs are communicated and misconceptions are dispelled. That can, at times, seem like an uphill battle. Bree knows from personal experience that misconceptions remain prevalent. There have been a lot of times when people have had misconceptions and one that I don't remember personally, but my mom told me about was right after I got diagnosed, I was taking an insulin shot in public and someone came up and said, don't you know there's a pill for that? Because I didn't realize it's not for type one. And my mom said that I just looked at her with all this heartbreak in my eyes because I thought my mom was making me take a shot when I could have just taken a pill. And then more recently, um, uh, I was on a dance team my freshman year of college and I asked to go sit down for a second during practice because my blood sugar was low and the girl in charge was like, well, can't you just like go chug a juice and then get right back into it? I'm like, not really. I need a second to adjust again. People have asked my mom before, oh, did you let her drink too much juice as a baby? Like, how does that make sense at all? (laughs) But still, she's optimistic that people are starting to become more aware. And there are resources out there to help, she says, like Camp Sweeney, a summer camp for kids with type 1, and organizations like the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. There also are campus groups, such as Someone Like Me, started by UNT sophomore Jessica Schlotman, that support students with invisible illnesses. They're all things that help make you feel less alone, Bree says. And it's really nice to have someone have a group to share your highs and your lows with. That's kind of a pun because I'm diabetes, but. (laughs) There are plenty of highs and lows when it comes to diabetes, which is exactly what National Diabetes Awareness Month aims to spotlight. Each November, communities across the country team up to bring attention to the chronic illness through events and resources. With 1.5 million Americans diagnosed with type 1 and type 2 diabetes each year, that need for increased awareness is becoming more and more urgent. On this episode of UNT Pod, join me, Erin Kristalis, as I talk with UNT students, faculty, and alums who are helping to create that awareness through research and outreach, and who are potentially creating a brighter future for nearly 35 million Americans in the process. Typically, early November is crunch time for Courtney Garvey. As the community outreach manager for the Fort Worth chapter of the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, the world's biggest nonprofit funder of type 1 diabetes research, these first few weeks of the month are typically the lead up to the organization's One Walk. The walk is a community celebration for those living with type 1 diabetes, in which they and their dedicated families, friends, and companies raise money for research advancements to improve the lives of those living with type 1, as well as raise awareness about symptoms and resources. This year, the worldwide community came together virtually for the event on November 1st. 
Just a month before JDRF's annual Type 1 Nation Summit, an event for community education and connection, also moved online. The events may look different, but their purpose, and that of JDRF in general, remains the same, Garvey says. What I think the biggest the biggest need is, is connection. It's to not feel so alone. I know type 1 diabetes, which is what we call T1D. So T1D can be, and it can feel very isolating. It can be isolating. It can feel it in every aspect of your life, um, both for the person living with the disease and also for the family. I think sometimes you can feel like you're on this island and we don't want people to feel like they're on their, this island because they're not alone. Um, there's other people walking this journey with them and we want them to feel that. I think JDRF provides some really great connection and that's through mentoring. So having families that have lived with type one diabetes, walk to that walk, reach out to those who are newly diagnosed and offer some guidance and some hope that, you know, life is great, life is normal. Um, here's some steps that I took to, you know, on my new journey with type one diabetes, but to really offer that you are not alone connection. In this kind of weird space that we're in right now, there's still ways to connect and we're still, you know, laser focused on providing that community. And we don't want people that, you know, just because we can't meet up for, for a local meetup or we can't meet up for the walk, for them not to reach out because we're still here, we're still thriving and we're still um, impacting the type one diabetes communities. JDRF offers tools and resources for people of any age or in any stage of living with type one including tips for entering the workforce, dating, marriage, pregnancy, or any other situation in which T1D status is a factor. But Garvey doesn't advocate for T1Ds solely from a professional perspective. She and her family first became involved with the organization shortly after her own type 1 diagnosis at the age of six. Um, my older brother was diagnosed a few years before me. So I think once both children were diagnosed, you know, my parents really sought out help. They sought out an organization um, that was fighting for their children. As a kid, she volunteered with One Walk and shared her experiences with type 1 and JDRF. After receiving her bachelor's degree from Louisiana Tech, she moved back to Fort Worth and once again volunteered with the Fort Worth chapter. Volunteers are a cornerstone of the organization, and as an adult, she found her fit and her purpose. That really inspired me, honestly, to um, move my career over to nonprofit. And of course, coupled with my, my degree from UNT, um, really found my passion was helping other people. So I got reconnected to JDRF and one thing led to the next and I got this awesome dream job with JDRF. Garvey has served as community outreach manager for nearly six years, and an important part of the job is to make the public aware not only of resources that can help with physical health, but also the mental toll chronic illness can take. So we often say that diabetes or type 1 diabetes is a 24-7 disease. You know, there's, there's no, day, no days off, and that can for sure take its mental toll, right? Like it's it's not only the no days off, but it's the high blood sugars, it's the low blood sugars, it's the in-between, it's Am I doing enough? Am I doing too much? Am I as good as the next type one diabetic? There's all this comparison game also um, in this whole world that we live in with type one diabetes. And um, sometimes it can feel, you know, insurmountable, I think. And I'm really, really happy that JDRF has made a bigger focal point on mental health. As we know, the stigma around mental health is shaking off each and every day, which is so wonderful, right? 
Um, so we have a huge focal point on mental health and getting the resources that you need for all those ages and stages that we talk about um, with life with type 1 diabetes. So for parents, for children, for teens, for those that like myself who have lived with this disease for 30 years, it, it doesn't go away, right? Like type 1 diabetes is here. You might get it when you're a child, but you, you grow up with it, right? Um, so there's tons of tools and resources available at the JDRF website, jdrf.org. Um, for the, uh, the mental emotional struggles. And as always, it's really important to reach out, right? If, if you're feeling a certain way, it's normal. Get connected with other type one diabetics. Like it's not fun to go through this alone, right? I, I know just through knowing you, Erin, we bounce ideas off of each other. And um, I think that's, that's the beautiful thing of it, right? Like don't go through this, this alone, reach out and we're here for you when you're, when you're ready to do that. And of course, as a leading nonprofit funder of type 1 research, JDRF works nonstop to deliver on the promise of making life with type 1 diabetes better. They've championed technology with that goal in mind, from the first engineered insulin 40 years ago to recent advancements like artificial pancreas systems. Throughout the years, JDRF has been dedicated to improving the lives of those living with the disease. So I think through the use of insulin pumps, when I was diagnosed, insulin pumps were hardly a thing, right? It was four shots a day and um, outdated insulin that didn't work very fast. So now we have these insulin pumps that can give us insulin throughout the day. And we have CGMs, which are called continuous glucose monitors that monitor our blood sugar. And we have this far faster and smarter working insulin. And that's, that's thanks to JDRF. So we know that to get to the cure, we need people living with type one diabetes to be healthier, safer, um, so that when that cure is here, our bodies are ready to accept it. But we won't stop there. You know, our goal is to cure type 1 diabetes so that no one else has to know that burden. And that's what we're working steadfastly on. And I think something that's also important to note is that JDRF commits a lot of time and energy to advocacy and advocating to our members of Congress. We have these awesome meetings that we go and you know, bring some kids or bring adults that live with the disease and get to meet with our, our local representatives and, and share what life is like. Share the triumphs, you know, there are some triumphs, but also share the, the, the daily struggles that we have with this disease. And we also advocate to them on the importance of funding type 1 diabetes research, lower insulin prices. We advocate strongly for that. We don't want insulin affordability to ever be a burden. Um, so we are, we are strongly, strongly advocating um, for the lives of all type 1 diabetics. Um, and I, I think the cool thing is that anyone can be an advocate. It's free and it's easy to sign up. Um, I'm a JDRF advocate and I feel like I'm making my voice heard and I'm doing my part to make sure that myself and my friends and my family who have this disease, that life is better for us. And I, I, I think that's huge, right? I think it's huge that we can share our story and make a difference at the same time. In Pamela Padilla's lab, some roundworms, more accurately known as C. elegans, are starting to put on a little weight. It might have something to do with the steady stream of glucose they're consuming. 
The C. elegans with a more standard diet, in this case, an E. coli strain known as OP50, are all maintaining their warmish figures. It's all part of a National Institutes of Health-funded research project in which Padilla, Associate Vice President for Research and Innovation, and three of her PhD students, including Ripa Nahar, Manuel Ruiz, and Jose Robledo, are using the C. elegans genetic model system to study how genes function. What my lab focuses on is stress and uh, more recently diet. And so I'm very interested in um, questions that surround how does diet impact the capacity for an organism to survive different environments. And so that's where this particular project is and, and the students that are here now that are, are um, focusing on that. And so I was interested in carbohydrates because that's one thing that has increased in society over the last couple of decades significantly relative to 100 years ago or thousands of years ago, people did not eat the amount of sugar the way that um, they do now. And so obviously it's um, something that we have to think about in terms of human health. There's also a huge increase in obesity within our um, country as well as diabetes. And so I thought, wouldn't this model system be great to try to understand some of the really um, molecular cellular details of how the organism can respond. The system models hyperglycemia, or high levels of glucose, which is a leading indicator of type 2 diabetes. The majority of Americans with diabetes have type 2, a chronic condition that affects the way the body metabolizes glucose, an important source of fuel for energy. In 2015, 88 million Americans ages 18 and older had prediabetes, meaning they had a higher than normal blood sugar level. Though the exact cause of insulin resistance is unknown, many doctors believe contributing factors include a combination of poor nutrition, a lack of physical activity, and genetics. Type 2 diabetes most often develops in people over age 45, but an increasing number of children, teens, and young adults also are developing it. That means understanding the effects of environmental factors like high sugar diets is vitally important. Even in a simple system like the one the team is studying, the C. elegans produce insulin, a process that is key to how metabolism is monitored in humans and, if negatively impacted, can trigger the onset of type 2 diabetes. With a high sugar diet, the worms, Pidia's group says, can experience those same detrimental modifications. Here's Manuel. Like Dr. Padilla was saying, it's an excellent model for uh, for to understand diabetes uh, and hyperglycemia mainly. So it's it's the worm, just like humans, the worm, when you uh, expose them to this glucose supplemented diet, the worm gets has an increase of lipid content. Uh, it has similar responses uh, that human, like for example, uh, in humans, when you have a person who's hyperglycemic or has diabetes, uh, the prognosis is more negative if they have a stroke or if they have anything that uh, involves uh, oxygen, like tissue, oxygen deprivation to specific tissue, to tissue, there crosses uh, the prognosis of damage to the tissue or for that tissue to die, the cells in the tissue to die is, is, is more negative than, than, a person, than an average person who has a normal diet. Um, so it's, it, there's a lot of things that we're finding out now about the neurons, about how it actually impacts neuron morphology and functions, which is what we've seen on hyperglycemia. People with hyperglycemia have uh, more uh, neuronal-related neuron -related, uh, issues, uh, conditions that develop. 
So it's 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 an it's an excellent model to understand. There's so many things that we're we're discovering, not just our lab but other labs as well. When the project first began, those negative effects were not what the group was expecting to find. In fact, Padilla had a much different hypothesis when she set out to study glucose and C. elegans. Originally, I had um, I was running a lot, so I was running half marathons, and I used to use this. Um, um, substance called goo it's like what runners do like you're at mile seven or eight or something and you feel like you need something so you can keep going so i had thought originally the hypothesis was i can supplement um the animals so that they can survive stresses better that was the intent and actually i found that i was probably over supplementing them with with um sugars that are detrimental and so it, they ended up not being able to survive stresses as well. But that was just as interesting to me. So not necessarily what could help runners, but actually what's causing problems in human health is, is sort of what my mind shifted to. Since then, the twists and turns and implications for human health have been pretty astounding. Here's Jose. My, my interest has always led also on the gene expression changes how we see so many genes that are just changing and altered throughout the whole world that are responsible for or involved in all many different organs in the animal. And so just diet in itself, you know, changes all of that uh, based on what the animal needs to be able to survive. Every finding leads to like new question. This is Ripa. So it's like never ending. Always we have question, why is this? My, um, Research is focusing on the um, impact of glucose supplemented diet on the developmental progression. So whenever I was working with that, I found that um, I identified a mutant which is resistant to uh, this phenotype, glucose-induced phenotype. So I'm trying to understand how is this happening. I feel like that's a lot of work. I have been working on it. It's really interesting to me. I think it might probably uh, will reveal something interesting. One of the biggest takeaways has been in the transgenerational impacts of diet. Because the C. elegans have roughly a two-week lifespan, the researchers have been able to see how the effects of high sugar consumption on one generation can potentially affect the subsequent generations. That doesn't mean it's all bad news, Manuel says. In humans, for example, progression from prediabetes to type 2 diabetes isn't inevitable. Doctors often advise that eating healthy foods, making physical activity part of your daily routine, and staying at a healthy weight can help bring blood sugar levels back to normal. The same lifestyle changes that can help prevent type 2 diabetes in adults might also help bring children's blood sugar levels back to normal. To me, I think it's going to have a huge impact because it's going to show how um, what you do, what a parent, what you do right now during one generation is has an impact on the next generation. And not only that, but it's not Going, I don't want I don't want you to think that it's going to have a negative connotation like oh well that's it we're condemned because if we eat bad our kids are no because this actually project that we have is actually going to help us understand maybe there are things that we can do and what things we can do to prevent something negative with regards to health to happen on the next generation or on the following generation so it's really interesting it's a really exciting pro project Thank you for listening to UNT Pod. 
To learn more about resources for type 1 and type 2 diabetes, including volunteer opportunities with JDRF, please see the links in our episode notes. And don't forget to stay connected with us on Twitter at UNT Social and on Instagram at UNT. Until next time, be safe.